Hey guys, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the t changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, February the 20th. This is episode 2385 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's a Wednesday, you know what that means. It's interview day. We're going to have Ben Falk on today. And Ben actually proposed this show to me. He said, why don't I come on and why don't we talk about Zone 4 Permaculture. Zone 4 is that great big zone that we would call farm forestry. But what Ben's talking about really is almost a blending of Zone 4 and Zone 5. Maybe a, a Zone 4.5 type thing uh, where we create the concept of being a hunter-gatherer on our own property and we assist and help and manage wildlife. And so we have an area more for foraging and hunting and things like that than uh, something that we would think of as being more orchard-like. We can get all kinds of food and fuels and, and, and medicine and fibers out of a Zone 4 system, but it's something that we don't talk about a tremendous amount on the show. And I, when Ben proposed it, I thought that was a fantastic idea. So we're going to have Ben on in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Guys, I think if you give RidgeWallet a chance, you'll really enjoy the minimalist approach uh, that it offers you, along with the identity theft protection that it offers you. You know, they started putting RFID chips and all our credit cards and things like that not too long ago. And there's technology available for a few bucks on eBay. where You can basically build a wand for less than $20 and go out and wand people's bags and asses and actually steal the RFID information off their identity. Did you know that? Well, when you put your credit cards and your RFID-enabled ID cards and things like that inside a Ridge Wallet, it's shielded and it's defended. And people can't do that anymore. It also, as I said, is a minimalist approach. I really enjoy my Ridge Wallet. I've been using it over a year now. I can't Im imagine myself ever going back to a traditional billfold. Next up today is ButcherBox.com. Last night... We had ribeyes from ButcherBox. They were really good, man. Uh, we kept it paleo-primal, too, man. We had uh, ribeyes and we had zucchini noodles. And it was just fantastic. And, and as anybody might imagine with me, I'm, I'm picky about where I get my meat from and what it looks like. When we go to the market, my wife doesn't even try to pick out meat because she'll, she'll be like, well, what about these ones? And I'll be like, nah, let me see. And she's just like, just go, you do this, okay? You do the man bring the meat home thing, like a, like a caveman or whatever. And so I am really particular about my meat, not just uh, where the source is from, but what the cut looks like, the fat ratios, all of that. I want it to be right. And I never have a complaint about Butcher Box. If you give them a shot, you'll see why. And with your MSB discount, you can get free bacon with every box for life. Check it out today, ButcherBox.com. And remember, both Ridge Wallet and Butcher Box do discounts for the MSB. On that, if you're not an MSB member, consider becoming one today. You can get all kinds of great discounts. The membership pays for itself. And the little announcement I have for you today, you kind of are going to need to be an MSB member to take advantage of it if you want to. But only 18 people get to do it. And that's why I say you kind of got to. Because whenever I do a workshop at my uh, my home, 
what I do is I open it up to MSB first. So technically, it's not like you have to be in the MSB to come to a workshop. That's, that's not my rule. But since they usually sell out, I give the MSB like a day or two to, to sign up, and usually they sell out in a few hours. I'm doing a workshop that I'm announcing officially today. Everything is official today of the dates on it, um, that I'm only going to take 18 students. I expect it to sell out in like 10, 15 minutes. Um, it's going to be a two-day workshop. It's 300 bucks. It's going to be focused all on building backyard ponds, like the timber frame ponds uh, that you've seen in my videos on YouTube. It's going to be off the hook awesome. It's going to be a lot smaller and a lot more intimate. Usually, you know, I'll sell 45 seats for students. And with an event that big, we'll bring in additional instructors. We'll have additional staff. Our, our kitchen staff will be four or five people. So by the time it's all said and done with, we're talking about an event with 70 to 75 people at it. And when I do those events, I do my damnedest. Those of you who have come, you know, I do my damnedest to talk to everybody. But it's hard. You just start doing math and, okay, you got stuff going on and everything. Like, how can you possibly really give everybody time? Uh, but, you know, with a staff of about four and uh, a group of about 18 people, we're going to be able to do a lot more one-on-one -on -one and, and stuff like that. This workshop is going to be building uh, Timber Frame Pond. We're going to be building a 12-foot by 12-foot, roughly 4,000-gallon pond. Uh, we're going to go over the plumbing, the pump, the liner, the biology, the fish stocking, the cycling, all of it. If you've ever wanted to build a pond in your own backyard, this will be a great workshop to come to. And uh, I put out an announcement for today in a video where we talk even more about it. So if you want to come, here's why that's tied into MSB. You're going to have to log into the MSB next Saturday. Next Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. Not this Saturday. Next Saturday, 2nd of March. I'll put a special link on the front page of your MSB account. You click on that link, and it will take you to a page to sign up. If by some miracle the uh, MSB does not buy all the seats by the next day, uh, I will put it up for sale to the general public, which I don't anticipate happening at all here. Um, this should be a really great one. And the dates of the workshop, I've previously mentioned this on air, but they are going to be April 25th and 26th. That is a Thursday and a Friday. Dorothy and I are doing that so that we get our weekend back. And I'm also thinking it's going to be good for some of you guys that might be traveling a little bit to come to this area because that means if you want to go do something in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and there's a lot of cool stuff to do, um, you have a whole weekend. So we're letting people camp over Friday night, and by 10 a.m. Uh, Saturday morning, you don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. Anyway, so that's coming. Uh, it'll go out in the Daily Mail today and everything else as well. So uh, I'd love to hear from some of you guys if you plan on coming so I can kind of get my, my head around who's coming and whatnot. You can email me and let me know, but I don't put the fix in really. So you're going to have to take your shot at it next Saturday morning. With that, I'm really excited to bring our special guest down. Of course, he is a member of the Expert Council. He is uh, one of the better-known permaculturists in the world for good reason. He does specialize in northern climates because he lives in a, a little tundra uh, of a state called New Hampshire, many of you have heard of, uh, Free State Project. I'm sorry, why did I say he's in New Hampshire? He's in Vermont. It's like New Hampshire's cousin. Uh <laughs> anyway, he lives in the, the tundra of Vermont. I think he's USDA Zone 4. Too cold for me, but uh, he does some really awesome stuff. I've been to his site. Uh, I've seen the amazing work that he's done. 
And when I was there, though, I, I really, because I was there for a PDC that I, I was a guest instructor at, I, I spent most of my time in what you would call his Zone 1, Zone 2 areas and really didn't get out into his larger managed lands that we would call his Zone 4, Zone 5. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about helping wildlife get through those, those cold winters and how we can develop the, the truly regenerative systems because nothing is more regenerative than the forest. And with that, hey, Ben, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, good to be here again, Jack. I, I'm glad to have you on today. Um, you're on the Expert Council, so... The audience in general is pretty familiar with you, but we get new people every day. So could you kind of give us just a little bit of your background? Like, how did you end up living on this, this you know, beautiful permaculture place in, in, in Vermont? How did you end up in permaculture? Like, take us back to, like, high school and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. How does that wonky path lead to where you are today? Yeah, well, you know, trying to make it short because it's, it's kind of a long path, but... um I mean, I think it boils down to that I wanted to be outside a lot um, in a lot of ways. You know, like I hated school, hated um, just conformity and rules and just, you know, kind of a life that I, had, that I grew up with in, you know, public school feeling like, look, this isn't how I want to live. Like, I don't know, you know, who decided this is, you know, th these should be the goals. You know, you're supposed to go to an Ivy League school and then – uh have some into some job in an office and work your way up management and you know make a lot of money and that's how it should go that that just i was never i always knew that was kind of what was uh being pushed on everyone um, but it never um never saw i was never sold on it so it was always a bit of a struggle in school always found it really boring and uh just wanted to be outside i fell in love with like rock climbing and backpacking and you know wilderness living um pretty early on and um Yeah, long story short, ended up going down that route a bunch. Oh, well, read Walden, Henry David Thoreau, like in uh, junior in high school, and was like, wow, this is the first, this is the first example of like a way that I thought I w would be good to live. You know, like, oh, this guy had to figure out he's like living in the woods, but you know, of course, it's very like, uh, you know, kind of edge type of person and you know wasn't what we were uh being pushed towards so it was very like how do we do how do i do that and still like have a, a life connected with the people around me and all this so I ended up going to do a wilderness kind of education approach be a guide and then found um um john todd in ecological design in college and uh, then realized okay this is kind of a good way to like solve problems but also work with your hands and work uh towards um you know solutions that you see you know that you're compelled to to work towards and you know be outside and kind of be your own boss and all that and then from there found permaculture and you know all just made total sense to me but um yeah it's been about 20 years of going down this rabbit hole of just living like a more self-made life, you know, more of like a homestead, um, land-based life, trying to solve problems, trying to hopefully do some good, but, but also live an enjoyable, you know, engaged life, which for me is like, you know, outside my hands on dirt and tools and, you know, in the mountains and in the rivers and all that. So, you know, kind of, that's, that's the brief, a brief version of it anyway. You know, very cool. Um, Not directly related to what we're talking about today, but certainly indirectly. One of the most important things that I heard you say there as you were trying to figure out your life was, how can I? Versus, wouldn't it be nice if? And I think I think there's a lot of permaculture uh, mindset in that, even though that's pre 
permaculture days for you. Uh, and I think that's a big mistake so many people make in their lives. Like people always like when you tell somebody like I want to live like like you know they talked about non Walnut Pond. Well, that would be great if. And there's always an excuse as to why that can't be. But I think it's amazing what happens when we start to ask ourselves, how can I, rather than wouldn't it be nice if? Right. Yeah. We're always we're always kind of um, assuming we don't have power that we really do. And yeah. Kind of like folding, old, you know, kind of like bending over to the larger power structures when we really could change our reality for for the better for ourselves if we wanted, if we if we really thought we could, you know. Absolutely. So um, I threw out a thing on Facebook, and we'll see what comes in from it uh, with people having questions about the subject today, and uh, it, it clued me into something. Sometimes I think I assume too much with what the audience knows because we've been talking about it for so long. So I, I mentioned that we would be talking about Zone 4 permaculture today, and some of the questions that started to roll in clearly indicated, they're like, well, but I'm in Zone 9, so we're talking about different zones there. We're talking about <laughs> USDA climate zones. So before we dig into this topic, can you kind of tell people what you mean by you – know, give us the, you know, the, the, the elevator explanation of, of permaculture zones again. We can't hear it too many times. And then what do you mean by Zone 4? Because when I look at the outline you have for today and our discussion pre the show – I'm kind of feeling almost like a zone 4.5 thing going on. You know, it's kind of a hybrid between five and, and four. So can you kind of make that clear? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, for, for, for just on the zone four piece, you know, with permaculture being a, um, a design system that's, that sees, um, the landscape as a whole and, and really the world we interact with as a whole as a, um, in terms of frequency um, of interaction with zone zero, you could say being the most frequent could, depending on who you ask zone zeros, let's say our body, or some people would say it's our indoor environment, like our kitchen. Um, some people call it zone zero, zero our body, but th that's up for debate. Um, and zone five being wilderness, and then everything in between being like some um, gradation of how frequently you interact with it. Zone one being, let's say, the gardens right outside your house, between your house and your car for most people, because they're going to go to their car most days, or their chicken coop or whatever, and that's all zone one where they can really maintain things very well, interact with on a daily basis. Zone two, less so, maybe that's where you have like some of your berry bushes, um, maybe some animals, although like a chicken coop would be in zone one. And then out three, four, five, three and four being more of like tree crop systems or maybe some types of animal systems and uh, four being like a forestry type of system, you know, or part of the landscape where you maybe interact with it once a year. Um, but you do still manage it to some extent. And zone five being like like wilderness, quote unquote, for all the problems there are with that term, but mm -hmm. an unmanaged landscape, you know, part of the landscape. So zone four permaculture being this kind of like area that we don't manage much, but we do have some leverage and we can make a difference there for the better and can improve the landscape as a whole and our life as a result from some long, um, kind of long-term thinking management and light management. Yeah. I mean, I've described it as designing your property so that you can live as a hunter gatherer to a degree on your property. Um, right. Right. Like more, making a high, yeah. It, you know, yeah. the words of, of the late Toby Hemingway thinking, far more from a standpoint of a horticultural concept than an agricultural concept, with horticulture being the culture of plants and agriculture being the culture of fields mm. and and kind of finding that balance. And see, what I, what I like about when you started describing it, I was like, that sounds a lot like really Zone 5, like we can forage there and, and what have you, but it's really for the animals. 
But I, I, I've also been talking a lot lately about how we need to get off the binary thinking that not everything's on or off. Sometimes it's more like a dimmer switch. So as we move out in that zone four toward a zone five, you know, maybe our entire property doesn't even really have a zone five. Maybe we, we take some active approach, though it's a very hands-off approach, on all the property that we're blessed to have the ability to manage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in some ways, the goal being the less, you know, the less we have to do, the better, right? You know, kind of the classic Fukuoka type of uh, archetypal, archetypal approach, right? Of like the, the more the system does for us, the better. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Zone four is where I think we really do have um, the classic opportunity to create this highly forageable landscape, like an intentionally forageable landscape, as you say, with the... Uh, the difference between agriculture and horticulture. So one of the things that four does, and five as well, and actually everything if we do it right, but but really four and five, especially with larger animals, is it does provide habitat for animals other than our livestock. Let's say in your area, deer and black bear. My area, deer and the invasive boar, which they can invade all they want because they taste really good. Um, and, and people think, okay, well, the wild animals just take care of themselves, but if we're actively managing our property, especially out in Zone 4, then we're going to put things in place that actually assist wildlife. Can you talk about why wildlife would need our assistance? I mean, they're wild animals. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, the there's a lot of pressures on wildlife that, that are relatively new, just like in a lot of parts of the country, for instance, um, you know, habitat reduction pressures how human housing keeps growing and uh so there's a lot less habitat in places so they need our help from that perspective in 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 a lot of places just in that their habitat is being reduced that's not true everywhere but it is in many places um it's true in the fact um that there's a lot less food available for them in some places than others and some for reasons that most people would think and some are more counterintuitive. Um, in Vermont, for instance, there's a lot less field that, than there used to be and a lot of wildlife really thrives at the edges of the field and forest. So um, one reason, for instance, that a lot of foresters I've talked to and kind of wildlife uh, fish and game biologists uh, talk about there being a lot less deer is because the farming has gone so downhill in Vermont over the last hundred plus years that uh, there's just a lot less um, of, of habitat for them in that way, even though we don't think of that as a, a natural habitat. There used to be way, you know, it used to all be forest. Deer really thrive with some, you know, human management in that way where they have a lot more food um, value in the landscape from things that humans used to do that we don't do anymore. So um, that's one example. And then, you know, things like losing the American chestnut, um, losing um, things like the passenger pigeon, you know, which there used to be billions of birds and, and the interplay between passenger pigeon and many other species which used to have an abundance um, and the rest of the system that we no longer see happen anymore. So in some ways you can think of this as just an ecosystem that's a lot um, less abundant than it used to be. So therefore, wildlife has has less um, food options available, not just loss of uh, loss of habitat. For us, it's a lack of oaks. It's, it's just a huge one. Like we, so much of the country has a lot of oaks, especially the eastern part of the country. But um, where we are, if, if we help oaks along, we have oaks. If we don't, you know, we're waiting for the oaks to spread themselves, which is only like. 100 to 200, 300 yards, maybe a year of a, of a dispersion due to 
blue jays and um, squirrels and and um, chipmunks. So you know we can move acorns, you know, twenty or a hundred miles in a year and start creating new waves of dispersion of of a food that puts out way more fat and protein uh, per area, per tree and per area than anything else that's growing here because we don't really have any masting trees in this part of the world except beech, which is a pretty minimal yield, you know, cause it's such a small nut. So that's like a huge leverage point, but everyone's gonna have their own leverage point, you know, wherever they're located. We have a massive one in putting nut trees in. Um, if you live where there's already a lot of nut trees, you have to find another yield uh, or another leverage point. But for Absolutely. us, it's just like we have lifetimes of like putting nuts in this part of the world, um, you know, before we're done. <laughs> so here's like a, a completely reverse problem that's the same problem requiring assistance. So in a lot of the country, as suburb the suburbs have spread and people have wanted to live more like they're in nature but not really in nature, they've done a pretty good job in a lot of these places of kind of building these suburbs less suburb-like, right, so that they have wood buffers between them and all. And this has created a massive amount of edge. And as you mentioned, white-tailed deer love that, so they move in. But now you have all this edge where they do really well in three-quarters of the year. But in the winter, because it's, there's no real wilderness, they don't have that support. So now you have an overpopulation relative to the total problem. And then without hunters, in a lot of these places, you know, they, they, they don't want the deer to eat their roses, but they also don't want the deer shot then you don't have any kind of active population management. So you have a totally different, like, it's, 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 it's kind of amazing that we can create either a shortage or a surplus, and both of them, if they're not done right and managed right and aided, can be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that winter food source is a huge hole, too, for us here, as it is for m most, most um, parts of the country, you know, where we can try to have food, uh, try to encourage food plots, tree crop food plots that bear um, a yield all through the whole winter, not just tree crop. I mean, you can, you know, till and sow yeah. radish and turnip and all that. And we do that for the deer too. But, um, we're particularly excited by like trees, any trees that hold fruit all year long. Yeah. Um, all, all for, winter for, long. for us, and I don't know how far North they do well, but you know, down here and all the way up into like Pennsylvania, persimmon is just an incredibly important crop because even though, you know, it'll be, ready to pull off a tree if you wanted to pull off a tree and eat it by early fall a big native persimmon those fruits will stay on that tree well into january sometimes even february and they mm -hmm. slowly fall over time as the as the fruit blets and then it's incredibly high sugar carbohydrate yield and i've seen a deer like eating persimmons under a tree i wanted to shoot him but he didn't come close enough and he was mm -hmm. eating persimmons he ate every persimmon on the ground He turned around and walked away. He made it about 30 yards from the, from the tree, and a heavy wind came, and one persimmon fell off that tree. He heard it, and that deer spun around 180 degrees, trotted back over, ate the persimmon, and then left. <laughs> and, and so it kind of tells you that there are these things that we we could be doing. Like that's that's an easy crop to propagate in a lot of the country, and people don't even think about it. You know, it's just something to make jam out of. Yeah, yeah, I have friends who who live in more persimmon country and they always, you know, just laud that tree for for its ability especially to just hold on and just get better and better over time it's holding on. Um, you know, bledding I guess is the term yeah. for for freezing and refreezing and just becoming more and more digestible, kind of pre-digested, although that doesn't sound very appetizing. It's really great with a fruit like that and just 
yeah, that being kind of a larder all winter. For us, it's really apples. There's certain apples that can just hang on. We, we've tried persimmons. We planted a few hundred over the years, and I think we have a handful still alive, but they don't seem like they're really going to do it here. Yeah, sometimes you can get survival but not thriving, you know. Right, um, yeah. Let's talk about some of the wildlife in particular that we can help with land management. I think deer's a big one. Uh, any others? Um, turkey, um, bear, moose. I'd like to figure out more on the moose front because they're they're doing really poorly here um, compared to bear and, and turkey, which are doing great, and deer are not doing so well, but not as poorly as moose. I mean, anything. But, you know, from a permaculture lens, I, I think of it as like the, the, either the species that are really hurting the most, like insects, uh, butterflies. You know, we're always leaving stands of um, milkweed and planting other stuff for the butterflies. But also more so, also food, you know, what is a wildlife um crop for us too that that we can use to feed ourselves so we don't have to get our food from somewhere else and and damage or destroy some other part of the system to eat so although it's nice from a let's just benefit wildlife as a whole perspective like the girl pollinator garden for insects i think there's a little bit of a of a bias in the permaculture and towards what can also help sustain us and help us meet our needs so i think of like game you know any of the game mm -hmm. um species I mean, I don't even think it's down to things like you mentioned squirrels. Squirrels mm. are an incredibly valuable component to the ecosystem. And when managed right, they almost, I'm gonna, I, I, I am going to you know, change what the game department say. The game department say they can't be over-harvest. They almost can't be over-harvest. We're talking about basically an animal that breeds very much like rats. But you know, they only have usually two, two to three kits per uh, litter, but they can have four or five a season. Mm. And it's a sustainable meat source. It really is. And like you mentioned, they also aid in the distribution because, you know, they bury a lot more nuts than they remember where they are. They really right. do. So, you know, that, that's another animal that – and I think what's interesting is, like, if you start – so you drill down and say, well, what does a squirrel need, right? Like, okay, well, they need food. They need cover. They need places to breed. So if you designed that into – a woodlot or a zone four system, how many other things is that going to, you know, end up supporting? Because if you, if you can feed the squirrel, you can feed the deer. Now the squirrel needs less, but they eat a lot of the same things. It, it break down to browse squirrels. I mean, a lot of people on this squirrels will uh, feed a lot on, on, you know, new budded and stuff like that. When the mast is gone for the year as they're waiting for that conversion over in the spring. So, There's a lot of habitat similarities between the deer and the squirrel. That's why you usually have your, your deer hunting blown by some squirrel screaming at you from a tree across mm -hmm. from your tree stand because they go, they live in the same place and they need the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting too with I think probably one of the first things that, that only in retrospect I realized was teaching us that we could grow wildlife very pretty quickly here was the unintentional way that we grew squirrels and mm -hmm. uh and and uh, chipmunks by terracing and making stone walls throughout our slope and then planting lots of you know food crops for people especially things like black walnuts and hazelnuts mm -hmm. and just making all of this rodent habitat which for us has actually been you know kind of a problem because they eat they eat a lot of our the food we're growing for ourselves vegetables and nuts especially and uh but but to see how how quickly you know they responded 
from this from our changes to their habitat, which wasn't meant to grow, you know, more of their numbers, but but did. <laughs> I don't know what to do about the chipmunks. I can give you a good squirrel stew recipe, but I think the chipmunk <laughs> is down there at the the you know. Something else needs to be eating it. I don't think there's a, an ROI on processing a, yeah, a chipmunk. Yeah, they're, they're pretty small. And our squirrels are red squirrels, so they're, they're smaller. Small. Yeah, yeah, way smaller. Well, they different. can live on pine cones, so they they can they can do well right. where uh, where where grays can't. Um, now, I think you've had problems with chipmunks specifically eating your shiitake mushrooms, right? Mm-hmm. Shiitake, <laughs> really, a lot of things in the really? last. Few so we finally broke down after I, I mean, I've shot them and made like, like baited stumps with crushed nuts for years. And I'm just, you know, sick of take a, taking the time and B just, you know, shooting rodents. <laughs> but, um, and I would turn them to compost, turn them into soil, turn, feed them back into the system. So we're essentially eating them, even if we're not directly, yeah. they do help accelerate the compost. But, um, but we did finally break down and get a couple of outdoor cats, which, you know, but that's, that's not too great of a solution because we're not going to eat the cats and that's not very much like a cyclical, yeah. you know, we're just trying to, what eats what is always the question and uh, the cats, I'm, we're not going to eat the cats. <laughs> so, no, but we did the same thing here because, you know, with, we had a, we had 150 ducks at one point and we started to have rodent problems with flat out rats and a couple outdoor cats, rat problem is solved. Cat's a buddy. He's not for eating, you know? Right. Uh, if you ever have surplus chipmunk, though, your dogs will eat them. Just, <laughs> just so you know. Um, yeah. What areas do you think of are most suitable for? Gro- we were talking about growing wildlife. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's not just a zone four thing, but for certain species, it is. Um, as I said, you know, our zone one is really what grew the heck out of a whole bunch of rodents um, unintentionally, but. Um, you know, what we're doing on our larger site is planting out margins of a 15-acre field that have come up in – so when we stopped brush hogging, when we stopped having that area brush hog, basically the, these margins have been brush hogged for 100 years by a local farmer before we owned the property. And we said, hey, you know, no need to keep knocking that down. It's all wet stuff that doesn't grow good hay and that's why it was just being knocked back and not in hay production so let's just see what's going to come up you know anything's going to be better than just keep knocking it back probably and uh, at least we'll learn something from it so starting in about year three four of not cutting those areas they're just started to come up into hundreds of apple trees um hawthorn goldenrod of course which is kind of everywhere for us and um, we realized that, you know, here's a whole orchard system that we don't have to plant and it wants to come up of its own accord. It's going to be really adapted, vigorous rootstock, which it is and actually wetland hardy, basically, because it's probably been trying to breed itself in these areas for a very long time. Runners from older apples on the on the drier parts of the edges. And then we started grafting um, those apples with tur- what I call turkey apples are just these crabs that hang on, you, you know, all through the winter. And we had a question on the expert council about that in particular that I talked about. Um, but that's one way, you know, all the Leopold called these areas, these kind of left out kind of in between areas on a farm, a remises, R-E-M-I-S-E, farm remises, and just really kind of wrote a lot about how you could just grow crops for wildlife, especially tree crops, in these areas, you could plant nut trees or fruit trees, or in in this situation, I'm I'm using an example. You could just top work trees, existing trees that are there, to 
put on a more desirable, different type of yield. Um, like for us, a plant, uh, a fruit that would stay on all winter, which is just such a key leverage point. And then we're also planting openings in the forest with oaks and walnuts and, and broadcasting those, those species really all around. There's wherever there's good openings for them, you know, kind of in the neighborhood basically. But, uh, those are just some examples. I think other people in other contexts are going to, going to come up with many different ones as well. What are some of the, you know, we kind of started to go into that, but some of the other plants that might be more useful for doing this? Well, I think like for us, as I mentioned, any nut is just going to provide a whole bunch of fat and protein that's not available in the landscape. And like our deer herd, I've been told basically overwinters on, on apple drops and browse. And some years we have no apple drops. Mm. So another big key, you know, so there's just nothing like this winter. There's some parts of the state that have some apples, but over large parts of the counties that I spend my time in, there's basically no apples. And um, so the deer are going to have, you know, luckily we're having a pretty mild winter all in all, um, but it's going to be a tough winter on the deer. And this is when they really get thinned out. So the other thing about these turkey apples, which, again, are just like a crab ornamental based crab apple, is not only that they hold through the whole winter, but that they bear as that is even more important. This is that they bear every single year. They just always bear. And I know you had sent me an email about about these and a good explanation for for how they work. But that's just huge. I mean, reliability is is massive. You know, in 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 terms of a food source like that. So um, yeah, apples, pears too, and any nut. But um, you know, and you're in other parts of the world, you just have to find what your limiting factors are. For us, it's totally winter food, which is true for a lot of places, and it's a lack of of nuts because um, deer are overwintering on sugar, basically. So any fat and protein um, is going to be huge for them in the fall. Again, that's only a fall crop. They're not, you know, I don't know if a nut that holds on all winter that would be pretty cool, but that's a storable calorie because you know if they gang up on on walnuts or, or acorns in the fall, that, that could form a really good reserve layer, whereas not a, as much the case for a sugar, you know, a sugar source like an apple. Um, but I think there's some pears that are going to probably prove to hold on pretty well as well, uh, as well. Um, but I don't, I don't know of any that's as reliable as these like crab ornamental crabs, uh, apples for us here. Have um, you tried growing Antonovka at all? Oh yeah, that's traditionally what what I've planted. Okay. It's mostly been Antonovka rootstock, um, and then I've moved in the last like five years over to M111 for the wetter areas, which I should have been planting in the beginning on our wetter original site. But I didn't know that M111 is a more water adapted wetland adapted rootstock because no one's ever told me that. But I'm pretty sure it's the case by looking at how they do in different places and then looking at the roots are totally different on M111 versus an Antonovka. The M111's roots look like a wetland plant, like a lily or something, mm-hmm. like super fibrous roots. And the Antonovka is like a taproody. Giant type. carrot. It looks like yeah. a giant carrot. Yeah. So are yeah. you growing the Antonovka out or are you just grafting on an Antonovka rootstock? Both. Okay. Both. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering but, how the Antonovka is doing. That's a personal curiosity. I mean, I've got it growing everywhere here, but none of it's produced yet. It's pretty hot here. I don't know if it'll work, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a super cold hardy rootstock. But uh, it's a pretty low low cost method of propagating apples. You can grow them from seed. You can buy rootstock right. and just let it grow. It's it, it's pretty awesome. I 
think uh, somebody just wrote me wanting to grow some, and they didn't want to wait for seed, and I turned them on, I think, Rain Tree, and they, they bought rootstock for like three fifteen a piece. So oh, yeah, you could you know plant a hundred trees for three hundred dollars basically. Yeah, you can get. I mean, you can get a lot of those Antonov rootstocks even some places for like a buck or two, yeah. a buck to max a, a, a plant. A lot of times, we you know when we planted our larger site, we planted almost ten thousand trees or so uh, in a in a month and a half, and we knew we didn't have the time or the the budget to buy pre grafted stuff. So we're like, well, we're just going to plant this whole thing as a seedling system of hedgerows and then we'll just top work it over time and that's what we've been doing and that's been a very viable approach because then you have years and and you the pressure is off and you basically have the first five years easily to top work and now some are getting a little tall like this last spring or like bending over some of the antinovkas which still hadn't gotten grafted and are like 10 12 feet tall we're (laughs) trying to add a tip to them but Generally, you know, we had at least three to four years, no problem of, of being able to reach everything easily. Very cool. Um, what are some other strategies you guys use to encourage and help wildlife? Well, we're growing, we're now growing wild rice, which has been um, another crop, which I think apparently people do so just for wildlife. Our, our you know, impetus wasn't per se for, for wildlife because we just love the food source so yeah. much. It's such, a, such an ideal grain. Uh, you know, I have this wild, truly wild grain. It's kind of like breaks, <laughs> breaks well, up. Are you bounds. doing that where you had been growing your, you know, your regular rice, your cultivated rice, or are you doing that out in these margins? Um, I'm do, we're doing on the, on the larger site, um, okay. where there's just full on, like, um, there's about almost three acres of water, of open water. Like um, marsh? Kind yeah. Of? Well, they're ponds. Okay. And okay. one of them just is, not uh, it's never been a great swimming pond and it's nice and shallow throughout the whole thing gotcha and it seems we spread them everywhere see where they like and it seems like it's happiest between two and four feet of water and uh it seems like about 90 plus percent of what we sowed two years ago came up and then we just harvested a very little bit this year and mostly shattered it and tried to you know shake it back in to re you know promote it growing again uh reproduce it and, you know, our goal is to have our own, you know, our own self-sustaining uh, grain yield um, from, let's say, half an acre of water. Um, yeah. You know, it's very extensive compared to the haponica, um, Ariza haponica, you know, which is an intensive rice. Totally different species, obviously, um, different genus, very different plant. But, um, you know, in, in the kind of system where we have like a lot of space – and a lot of water, you know, the extensive system might be much more suitable than an, than an intensive system. That's very cool. I didn't know you were growing that. I mean, it makes you think I've seen, like, I think Michigan is one of the top producers of wild rice. These guys are just, like, rowing around in a canoe. They just take the heads over and smack them with an oar, and it just falls in the boat. And I'm like, yeah. you know, that is, that's where you're on to something, because you're never going to harvest 100%. There's always going to be some to reseed. That's the exact place that thing wants to grow. It's probably been growing there since before humans walked on the shore of that, that body of water. And that's awesome. I didn't even know that anybody grew wild rice in Vermont. Yeah. I, you know, I think people are, are starting to. There definitely there's some hardcore ricers, you know, real rewilding, like forager types of folks who do go to Maine to actually harvest their year's worth of, of rice. And they, these people eat like a couple hundred pounds of rice or so in a year. You know, they really – live that's their grain source um 
and they go to Maine for it. But there are stands. I don't know how naturally occurring they are here and there in Vermont. Um, I think the native Abenaki folks probably are the ones who would know the most about them. We've been trying to find out more about it. But they're they're very few, and there's certainly seemingly none in the hills. And and we're trying to bring them bring that sort that that those genetics to the hills because, I mean, what a what a sustaining like totem crop. It's it, that's kind of like. Where people, I think, have wild rice, that was like their coconut, you know, that was their like staff of life um, for for thousands of years. Just such a such a sustainer. You know, when people talk about stuff like that, I always wonder, like, is there something we don't even know? Like that, that was like that for somebody and it just got lost the time. Oh, yeah. You, you know, I'm sure that I'm we, sure. there's still stuff coming out of South America that like, oh, we've used this forever. You didn't know about it. But I mean, like right here, like I'm sure there are things that like it just yeah. got it just got bulldozed over. People missed it. Nobody saw it. Um, you know, like one of the things I know of is out out west, uh, Mazanito, which is like these little apple things. Mm. That was a, a, a an in, a incredible food crop for the indigenous people. And, and like when Europeans settled it, they didn't even understand that was food. They did. They just right. ignored it. And now it's pretty ornament wood inside people's fish tanks. Like no one sees it as a food source at all anymore. So I wonder how many other things there are like that out there. Yeah, there's so much, so much rediscovery to do, and and yeah, kind of resurrection and and also development. Ideally, you know, like Jay, you know, Jay Russell Smith was popularly, uh, you know, wrote about this, but other people have as well of just. Uh, breeding, you know, breeding new new options for us too. That's kind of the lifelong, um, should, you know, journey that some of us should uh, should try to take on. So, do you guys just grow stuff for wildlife, or do you grow things that are more for you guys as well in these zone four, zone four and a half type systems? You know, like. I know you do mushrooms for one example. Do you do that out in those systems or? Yeah. Well, the, our originally for like five years or so, we grew shiitakes in kind of zone four, like up above the house in the woods. And that's just because that's where the maple logs were, were cut, were felled. And so hauling heavy stuff, less distance was good. And then uh, there was also water, some basic water source there. Not great, but. I could I dug some holes and kind of had seasonal water there, um, and it was shady. So those are like good things to have in your laying yard. But really, over time, I realized we would just miss too many flushes, and the uh, snail or um, slugs would get them, rodents would get them. So I realized over time, look, if I really want shiitake, this shiitake needs to be in zone one, and it just haul the wood to zone one. It's a bit more work, but just if you're going to do it, you get mushrooms. It, it, yeah, if you want to get the mushrooms, it's it's a lot of work for nothing. If you don't get the mushrooms, even if you don't have to haul the wood very far, it's a waste of time. So, and you could have burned that nice sugar maple sweet firewood instead of rotting it intentionally. So, I've now moved just trying to really grow to just bringing the wood into zone one, and that's tricky because zone one isn't just necessarily a shady place. We want a lot of sun in zone one, and there's not a lot of good places for shiitake logs in my zone ones but you know there should be if you want to really get shiitake so in some ways i've just grown less shiitake um not to focus on this crop too much because your question was about a lot of other things too but basically i just try to walk around more and harvest do more wild foraging for mushrooms because we live in a not an amazing place for wild mushrooms but pretty darn good it's and, amazing uh, compared to where i live i right, you exactly. know it is it's pretty daggone solid 
It's good, yeah. I think I, I don't know how much of it. I think it's it's really good, and I think some of it's due to me not being a great mushroom forager for sure. Um, but I think sometimes the the more moist coniferous woods, coniferous woods seem to be even better, and especially where they have more oaks. Like we don't have chicken of the woods, for instance, or hen of the woods. Well, we have some chicken, no hen though, because there's so few oak. Um, this chicken will will happen on uh, black cherry. But yeah, basically I'm saying, all right, I'm going to take all that time. I'm going to use it for wild harvesting, wild foraging mushrooms instead, which I'd rather do anyway. It's just like walking around in the woods than drilling thousands of holes in logs. Um, so mainly I've moved away from, you know, intentional shiitake production. But uh, for the cornucopia of other mushrooms we have to harvest wild. But mainly, I mean, in zone four, there, those other species that we're talking about are mostly for wildlife, walnut oak uh chestnut um that we intend to hunt i mean i definitely intend to and do hunt some of those animals um turkey and and deer but um there's definitely i mean definitely we would go and harvest those walnuts and acorns too for direct human use but we'll probably have enough of those in zone two and three that we won't need to. It'll just be a question of like, what are the best genetics and, you know, what do we feel like going to get? I mean, if we find, you know, we may have some walnuts that do really well that are in zone four that just seem like great nuts for us to harvest uh, versus some in zone three. But I mean, the fact is there's going to be more nuts than we can eat down the road on our, on our, in our systems. So, um, it's really for wildlife and the stuff that's in zone four for sure in our, in our setting. You know, um, one of the things I was thinking of when you were talking about this with turkeys, have you guys, especially like in your margins out on, on these types of systems done anything with chufa? No, I haven't. I, I've heard, I've heard of chufa. I'm not familiar with it though at all. It's, it's pretty awesome. The only negative is when they do decide they want it, they kind of tear the ground up to get it. But that creates like turkey tilling, basically. So it's uh, it's uh, basically they call it earth almond. It's grown mm. a lot in the Middle East. You can make a drink out of it. It's a lot like milk. Um, oh. It's considered a weed by a lot of people because it spreads by nodules, and it sets these little. They're about the size of like a like maybe three times the size of a of a shell pea. Okay. And turkeys love them. Pigs love them too. You guys really don't have pigs, but. Turkeys yeah, love it. You know, like if you wanted to like kind of clue your turkeys in, a lot of times they'll walk right past it. But if you pull a couple up so that they eat a couple and they figure out what it is, then they'll, mm -hmm. they'll tear right into it and pull a bunch of it out. And so that yeah. might be something to look at. Cause I think that's hardy to like zone three. Oh, interesting. It's kind of yeah. like a, like a, it's kind of like a pest grass, except it actually has nutritional value in the, in the, in the nut, you know, or the sedge or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Sure. Interesting. And it's cheap. Well, <laughs> that sounds yeah that sounds really neat one thing i i mean i guess i should mention from your last question that our wild rice is in zone four okay. to some extent it's kind of zone three zone four but it's definitely not zone one so it's definitely a very not often interacted with extensive crop that is directly for us i mean that's our main intention although waterfowl food is good and i would hunt geese that's eating it um yeah. it's really for us and that's a zone three four crop for sure very cool um do you have any good books or video resources for people that want to learn more about this yeah um 
Well, you know, a lot of this this big picture kind of um, land management approach is very well covered uh, in Tending the Wild, you know, um, M. Cat Anderson's famous book about Native American land management in California, what's now California. Um, and that, so that's a great overview and it's a good way into kind of a very, very clear window into how, um, these resources and, and landscapes were managed, um, for that part of the world. But then, you know, as I mentioned, Aldo Leopold, um, one of his lesser known works, he really talks a bit about farm remises. He doesn't get into tons of how to, but it's a good, a good account of, of, of the concept at the very least. And he, he does have somehow to, um, then as far as other zone for permaculture resources, you know, I'm not really sure what's, what's written as far as how to it's, it, it, we need, um, there needs to be a good, a good book on it. Um, but I don't know of one that's specifically focused on that. Um, you know, I know there's some guys out of Pennsylvania, uh, Ben Weiss, I think, and um, Wilson Alvarez, who are who are pretty focused on Zone Four permaculture as a whole, and they might be good to check out. Um, Susquehanna permaculture, you know, I know they've they've worked with this as a focus to some extent, but you know, in some ways, this really gets into the kind of the reverse wildcrafting, you know, foraging world which is also very underrepresented as far as like the wild crafters out there. Um, you know, most people I think are trying to be good and sensitive hopefully to what they're harvesting, but they're not actually trying to like, you know, inoculate the spaces with, um, species and increasing the abundance of existing species of, um, of the plants and fungi that we're harvesting. But I think that's probably was done a lot of the time for thousands of years by, by, you know, uh, first peoples for sure. I don't mean to say it's something new. You just don't really see a lot about it today and, and certainly how to on it. Sometimes I think we've, we've gone too far knee jerk in the opposite direction with that. Like native, native peoples here in this landmass cultivated the wilderness and they really didn't, like you said, I have a problem with that term too. Because it creates this idea that somehow we, are unnatural and we live in our little houses in our little cities and then wilderness is over there and the only thing we can do by entering that is mess it up and yeah right. there's a lot of stuff that's been done to mess it up but that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be a natural piece of that system so the thing is we can think at a higher level than any other animal we know of anyway so we can try to avoid stupid things like bringing kudzu to atlanta georgia but on the other hand you often say native to when when it comes to plants So I, I hear about the scourge that is uh, autumn olive, and I know that's a plant you and I both love. And the state of Texas, their official stance on the reason it's such a problem is that it so increases fertility that some of the plants that can only grow in really infertile areas stop growing in those areas because the areas become too fertile. <laughs> Not that it, like, it doesn't spread everywhere and displace everything and eat your children It takes infertile areas and makes them fertile. And I'm like, uh, yeah. Uh, and we want to be infertile, damn it, because then we've been infertile for so long, like maybe 100 or 200, 300 years. Yeah, and that was the, the same places that they're crying about the fertility now. Those places were incredibly fertile before we screwed that up. Sure, right, right. And then yeah. you have a plant that wildlife can use. You have a plant that 
humans can use. And I've been amazed, like, what happens when that plant gets, like, run over by a bulldozer. So we mm -hmm. had some road work done in West Virginia where there was a ton of, of wild autumn olive. And, you know, it's like you, you do what you can to not run stuff over, but there was a huge swath of it, and the bulldozer just smashed it. Mm. And that season, like, it just came back. It was, it was bigger than it ever was. There were straight yeah. whips coming straight up, and they ended up covered in fruit. Yeah. And you could see which ones were the sweetest because when the deer came, they would selectively eat the ones that tasted better first. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was so it's like, oh, that was getting eaten. Let's go get some fruit off of that before it's gone, you know? Uh, yeah. So much of the, of the, the kind of reaction, the knee jerk reaction against, you know, these quote unquote invasive plants, it is, it's so very aptly what you're saying. Like, we're, we're literally, we, we've abused the place to such an extent for long enough that we forget what the place, you know, was. And then we try to defend, you know, what the place is. It is now recently and, and, and think and, and create policies against anything that might change that. You know? Well, the displacement thing is to me a weak argument because you mentioned chestnut. So in your part of the world, that was the, the big problem to blight down in the southwest, southeastern United States. We had kind of the southern version of the chestnut, the chingapin. Mm. And it got its it got its ass kicked just as bad. The same thing that killed the chestnuts killed the chingapins. Mm. And so they were like basically a smaller chestnut in when i say smaller i mean the nut was smaller mm -hmm. but the trees still are huge and yeah and that all got wiped out too so what what came into that space like you, you see what i'm saying like there, there needs to be something there mm -hmm. if we want to put yeah. it back to like the way nature designed it then we need something to be there and if the original thing won't grow then it's up to us to figure out what will without causing problems like i see very few plants that are that really make my definition of invasive. Um, mm -hmm. Down here, privet is one that is definitely invasive. So privet, people put it all over these little box-looking hedges and their HOAs and stuff. But I can show you privet that's changed leaf form, and it's growing all over the area, and it specifically displaces a native plant, Yapon holly. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is an invasive plant to me because it's displacing a native that was doing just fine before it got there, And it spreads on its own. English mm -hmm. ivy, people say, is invasive, but it's almost like it's a vampire. Like it can't go across an open field without being fried by the sun. Mm. So, so there's, I can show you old neighborhoods here where the whole one side of the house is covered in English ivy, but I can't find English ivy causing a problem in the woods. Mm -hmm. And if it displaces anything, it displaces poison ivy. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of okay with that. I know I'm not supposed to be, but if you're going to displace anything, I'm kind of okay with poison ivy being displaced. So I think we have to look at the totality of what does this plant do? What does it actually displace? Does it displace anything? Mm -hmm. Is there a benefit? And, and I don't claim to be the guy that can make that decision. Like I don't, I'm not a, a, a biologist that studied the wilderness for the last 30 years of my life, but I do think we do get overreactionary toward you know anything. And then is it already there? Like, right. don't tell me not to plant autumn olive because it's invasive when the highway department went and planted this stuff up and down the highways for 25 years, and now it's everywhere that it could ever be, but I'm not supposed to have it on my property. To me, that also doesn't make any sense.
Right. Well, as you said, nature abhors a vacuum and, and we ecosystems aren't static and, and species are coming and going. And while it's a good goal to, you know, keep all the parts, you know, the intelligent tinkering starts with keeping all the parts, as Leopold says, and not throwing them out. Diversity is a, is a good goal. We have lost certain things are just gone. They're out of the system. And, you know, now how do we work with those systems? We can't, we can't be constantly trying to maintain a static state, uh, that once was. Um, that's, you know, A, we can't feed ourselves that way. And B, that's just not, not reality. So there is this kind of concept of, you know, working with novel ecosystems and the fact that ecosystems are a constant, um, you know, uh, adaptive response to changing conditions, pollution, climate, um, you know, disturbance and everything else. So, you know, it, it, the, the concept that there's, you know, kind of a natural composition is even very problematic ecologically. Cause what do we mean by that? Like when, that's why I say native when. to when, when oh, I love that. is that natural? You well, know, it's, it's not, it's not specific to a place. It's specific to a specific time in a place. Absolutely. Like there's a biome that ranges from parts of Texas all the way up into Montana called Sagebrush Steppe. And the junipers are, like, going crazy in that system because they screwed everything up. Well, they mm. now call the juniper a invasive species in the sagebrush steppe, but it's a native species in the sagebrush. So nobody brought it there. It didn't invade. It filled that vacuum. And, like, when you have biologists calling a native plant invasive, right. like, I think now we have we have really kind of lost focus on what's going on here. T getting rid of the juniper will not fix this problem. Putting something in there that grows with the juniper that used to keep it in balance, that's the issue. And, yeah, I don't want to beat too much up on this, but you, you know what I'm saying there. Like, that's, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's irrational. It's, yeah, and it's, it's an important conversation to have because it's so stagnant, you know, in the world around us. And I mean, even the term invasive is like, you start drilling down on it, like you're saying, it's really not, um, it's really a problematic term. And it's not really especially ecological it just points to like usually a management problem or a lack of management and if we were all like living in our landscapes interacting with them um in a in a very engaged and active way to get a yield this whole concept of just like these invasive plants out of control would just change very very quickly because we would be actively manage them and managing them it's not like these plants you know overnight you wake up one day in a, in a system you're managing you walk out and this this plant's taken over everything it's it's a it's a process that's relatively slow and it's, it's happening in places that we don't usually manage very much um and usually is 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 um heavily disturbed you know abused and abandoned so it's 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 emerged like the whole nativist ideologies definitely only could have mer emerged in a context where people are engaged are engaged in their landscape with it more as a museum than like their food system. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting if you, there's some articles out there um, floating around about how native peoples see this whole topic and they kind of think it's, you know, as from what I've gleaned from some of this, they think it's kind of silly. They're looking at it like, look, these plants are playing a role. They're looking at it very ecologically. Like these plants are playing a role And we kind of feel bad for these plants because you guys hate on them so hard and they're just doing what they're doing to make a living as a result of what you have done to the system. You know, it's, it's, it's an, it's, it's interesting. There's also the whole topic of ex situ conservation, which we just should mention here for people to look into just the concept of that since 
conditions are changing so much that actually conserving certain species genetically may, means more more often now than ever, um, or at least in a long time, that we have to promote species in places that they haven't lived before if we want them to survive. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's not just an, uh, plants; that's animals too. We have. You know, we have like game ranches here in Texas that are, and when people hear that, they think of like a canton or something. We're talking like ranches that are like 25,000 acres, right? But they mm. have animals on them that are highly endangered in their native habit, but we have an abundance of them here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's good or bad that we got to that point. But now that we are at that point, and that animal's living in that biome and doing well in that biome and surviving in that biome. And some of the countries that these animals are from today, let's just say their governments may not be really hip on worrying about this particular horned animal. You know, <laughs> um, the fact that that animal is actually like its its future is guaranteed in that place if we don't change it. Like it's not going to go away. The fact that people will pay to go hunt it, you know, they're not going to kill them all because then they wouldn't have any more to do that with. You know, and, and so you could take that on again, like you said, the plants and things like that as well. Like uh, even in, I'm a kind of off the permaculture thing. I'm kind of a fish nerd, and I do things with aquarium fish. And there's aquarium fish that don't even live where they originally came from anymore. They don't exist at all. They only exist in the aquarium trade. And you know, I'm not for setting white cloud minnows loose in extreme in Texas or anything, but the fact that they are still around means that let's say that. The part of China where that fish is native to one day gets its shit together. The <laughs> fact that there are thousands of Aquarius that have stock of that fish give us the opportunity then to reintroduce that animal where it came from if the time ever arises. It's like a bank, I guess, like the mm-hmm. sea bank in Norway or whatever, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the classic, like, you, you know, you keep tools around that you don't necessarily use every day, but you know you might need at some point. Um, that's got it. It's a, it's not a complete analogy, but there's, there's a lot of truth in that, in that comparison. You know, these are, these, every species is an example of, of a fittingness to place, you know, of, a, of an evolution of some adaptation to circumstances and those circumstances rise and fall. And, uh, there's no need to, to, we, we want to preserve those, those adaptations, you know, not just throw them away, even when we know, you know, They they may be thrown away in a particular place because, as you said, a lot of places are under incredible threat, and and they will you know they will go extinct in their native quote unquote range. Well, in some of these places, they're so war torn right now. Like I don't have time to worry about this minnow or this this little deer or whatever it is. While my my concern is, do I do I survive till tomorrow? And mm. so yeah, there's there's some validity there for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mo- moving on a little bit though, for people that want to do this stuff. Where would you suggest people do things like get scion, plant material, seed, stuff like that for these uses? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the just to I'll just back up for one second and say sure. one of the things that people can do just because I, I gave a pretty poor answer, I think, in terms uh-huh. of you know resources before, and because I, I do think there's not a lot of resources out there in terms of books, but I should. Obviously, books are only one resource, but it's easy for our minds to just go there because other people can access the same books um, one has in one place in another place. 
but really context specific resources are are the old timers often in your place and hunters you know talking to hunters especially um and naturalists other naturalists not just i think many good hunters that's what they are is good naturalists um but talking to those people in your wherever you are and saying hey you know what animals are are not doing well around here and what do those animals eat? What do you see? You know, what do you see is really valuable for those animals? You can get great clues um, to your local area. That being said, um, finding, you know, the genetic resources to help them, the seed or science, um, those can be in your your local area. Um, often they already are and you just have to find them and take, you know, cuttings. Like for us, we, we find the, the ornamental crabs that do the best in parking lots. Usually they are because they're planted for ornamental uses because they're always bearing heavy fruits and keeping them all winter. So they look, uh, people think that looks cool. I guess it does, um, in parking areas and malls and all that, like plaza strips. And will you know? Always keep pruners in your car, riding shotgun or in your console. That's a first good principle, right? It's like don't go anywhere without pruners. Um, and you can get, you know, you can get those signs when you see an abundant tree that you want to reproduce the effects of on your land or somewhere else. Um, take cuttings. So the landscape as a whole is a great resource. Um, ideally your local landscape but if it's not there you know friends who can mail cyan wood in the cool season it's easy in a, in a plastic bag to just ship some cyan wood you know in a few days it'll maintain its viability um in a ziploc bag the usda germplasm lab like um online they will send you well it was shut down. I don't know if it's opened back up again from when the government got shut down recently, but they will mail uh, science for free to you, and they have all sorts of varieties. Many nurseries will send science. Um, again, you want you know usually plants that hold fruit through your your either dry or winter times is that's a it's one good approach anyway, um, or have a of a yield that's not co- um, common there like fat and protein for us. Um, yeah, I'd say those are pretty, those are pretty good resources. Your local landscape, nurseries, USDA. I don't know. Can you think of any others that I'm, that I'm blanking on? I mean, friends and people that you find online. Well, like I'll tell you that one of the things that you can do, uh, is check what your state nursery provides. Uh, and sometimes even uh, there's like West Virginia, They'll, they reach a certain point during the year where they realize, okay, like we're not going to sell everything we have. So they'll sell out of state once they come past a certain time of the year. Mm. And we got uh, chestnut hybrid chestnuts, Chinese American crosses, for I, I believe it was something stupid like 25 cents a tree by buying enough of them. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great that that state nursery has hybrid chestnuts. Most don't. That's really cool. It was uh, it was like one of these things where like we were going to get like two thousand of them, and by getting like four thousand of them, the next two thousand were almost free. Yeah. So totally. so that the state nurseries. Um, I'm trying to think now. The, the name will come to me. Oh, is it burnt? It's not Burnt Ridge. There's a nursery that I buy from all the time that they have some stupid cheap price on larger quantities. Uh, like one of the things I would actually suggest you might want to take a look at is uh, Hanson's Bush Cherry. That might be, a, yeah. and, and you can get those for, it's one of those things that like your price point is like at 100 plants, and it just goes dumb cheap. Right. Uh, so, th- so like, it's not lawyers. Lawyers is one like that. It's this other one, and like I said, we'll hang up. It'll come to me. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, 
that's a good place to look as well. And then I'm with you on the pruners, and I'm beyond pruners. I go somewhere, I'm looking for seed, I'm looking for something I can take a cutting of. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple, because if I get something that is adapted to my region, so if, when I go to the zoo, I'm looking at what they plant. I figure if they plant it, it's okay for me to plant it. You know, <laughs> We have a wildlife preserve about a mile and a half from my place, And there is a huge mimosa tree, which is like a, a really good tree for bees. Mm-hmm. And it's like the only one I've seen anywhere around here. So hmm. I know the seed off of that tree. I need to be propagating that particular mimosa and, and getting some of that onto my property. So things like that. Um, and then always, like if you find something that looks cool and you find seed off of it, I would suggest you find out what it is before you go propagating it. Like we found this really cool looking tree at that place it was more like a shrub it had these little they looked like little almost like little black chestnuts almost is what they looked like on it and i was like this is a cool looking tree i had seen it earlier when it was in flower it was really beautiful and it ended up being something called mexican buckeye and the seeds are sweet so animals will eat them but they're also toxic hmm. so you would not you know so make sure you like find out what it is and don't just assume things are what they are Because sure. I don't want, you know, something that's sweet and small enough for a duck to eat. And, you know, I could have 10 dead ducks back there in five minutes if I don't pay attention. And right. if you involve cattle in any of these systems, I know we're more of a zone three at that point. Don't ever underestimate the ability of a cow to kill itself. Like, hmm. just a side note, like a cow will figure out how to kill itself. Like, you've done everything you can. And the cow's like, I think I'm going to go over here and eat uh, enough hedge apple to kill myself through impact. So they, they will do it, right? Oh, sheep, sheep will do it. Sheep will give oh. them a good run for their money, potentially. You pushed me away from sheep for the rest of my life. One day, <laughs> and I was done. Uh, I had never seen anything like fly strike, ever. That was... <laughs> well, you're, uh, more goat, you're more in a goat climate anyways, right? Yeah. Uh, we, do, we have actually a sheep breed down here that avoids all the problems that you, you, know, you can get with fly strike. Uh, uh, they're called dorpers, hmm. and they're 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 really a sheep, but it's almost like you took a big goat and crossed it with a sheep. They mm-hmm. they get big woolly fur, but then it falls off every year, so you don't have to shear them. Sure. And they will browse far more to the the weedy side, like goats yeah. will, but yeah. they don't climb you know on top of your house, on top of your car, over a fence. Like right. our saying down here is, if it won't hold water, it won't hold a goat. <laughs> you know, it just they. I, I, yeah, I, no, I don't like goats. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I find the, the concept of having to deal with sheep displeasing. I, I, I just don't, the only thing I have for a goat is a 3006. I, <laughs> they're good. They taste good. Somebody else will take care of them. I love goat milk, but I don't, I don't want the management problem. Um, sure. Yeah. What, 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 you, you kind of mentioned some people in Pennsylvania. Are there, there are people out there that you think are good people to rely on to, to learn more about this stuff? Yeah, well, you know, I really think wherever your whatever your context is, it really wants to be so specific to your context and based on hopefully standing on legs that are that that are old there of knowledge and experience. Um, so I think your local neighbors who are naturalists and hunters um, are really going to be a good starting point to to see you know to help you identify what are the holes. Uh, in your in your ecosystem, you know, where are the limiting factors for animals thriving uh, to help your your local ecosystem? And again, not just the ecosystem itself, but you for a food source, um, uh, you know, in your specific place. 
Um, and th- that being said, too, I mean, not to underestimate your own ability, your own um, experience with observation and just seeing, you know, what these holes are yourself, ideally, but tapping into that older experience. Beyond that, then, yeah, then maybe seek people who focus on this, you know, that might be permaculturists in your area. I, I really can't. I really don't know of folks who have really made a, a focus on this beyond um, the folks I mentioned at Susquehanna Permaculture, just because I know they, they do a zone for permaculture focus. But that doesn't mean there's not other people out there. Um, you know, there's a attending the wild Facebook group that's kind of dedicated to to this as a topic. Um, I mean, any any permaculture approach should should take into account but it's it's not a very active space let's sure. say within within uh the practice of permaculture so it's not something like a lot of people are a lot of people don't also have the space maybe or time to focus on it i mean we've just for us it's evolved once our zone one systems and two systems are pretty set up and planted in you know planted up densely and are kind of like never they're never done but they're kind of like established and they're going and we're now in much more like maintenance mode in year you know, five to 10 to 15 on the different sites. So we start to look outward. Okay. How can we help these further out zones along? Well, that makes uh, sense. Cause I've been to your place. I've seen your yields and you get to a point where like, even if I made this better, what am I going to do with it now? Right? Like, you know, like I, I've seen you shake a plum tree and go, okay, well he's good for plums for a while now. I mean, yeah, yeah. Tree. Point, yeah. The system allows you to start shifting your focus, you know, outward and even to offsite to, to assisting the ecosystems around you than not just, you know, your quote unquote own systems. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I know that's, you know, not a, a very, <laughs> not a very satisfying answer, but I, I think that that's the reality of the situation is really, you know, using your resources, um, in people that may not be even calling any of this permaculture in your, in your local area, you know? Well, in your observation comment, I think bears uh, like, what opportunity can you see that's, that's easy? So like one of the things we did when we lived in Arkansas, we had, Uh, a couple neighbors that they didn't care if we walked up their road, went on their property, whatever. That was just all woods, basically. And as long as you were known, you were fine to be there. And so this road that went up the backside of the mountain on the ridge behind us was covered in blackberries uh, in, the, in the early summer. And we noticed that, like, all of the blackberries that were growing just off the road where there were deep ruts in the road that would fill up with water and, and act like a swale were much bigger and, and heavier blackberries. So we took a shovel and we cut little ruts, not in the road, but in the ground, just in front of the blackberry hedges, so they would fill up with water. And then by the next season, those blackberries were doing way better than they were before. Mm. So that we didn't even have to plant anything. We didn't prune anything. We didn't graft anything. All we did was create a little bit of deposition trap for water. Mm-hmm. Now, you got to think about doing, like, what do you, when you do something, something else happens, right? But that was a pretty low risk, hey, let's see if this works type of thing. And it gave a much better yield. So mm-hmm. that's, and, and there's no way you're going to pick every Blackberry game and what's not going to get some of it. Squirrels love them. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that you can do there. I would like, before I let you go, to throw a little bit of the stuff off of um, Facebook at you real quick. And you can do, the, like, the Reader's Digest if you want to on some of this. But sure. uh, one guy asked about, like, kind of set it and forget it crops that we can use. And you talked about some of those. But he mentioned Jerusalem artichokes. Would you consider that a, you know, a zone four crop at all? Yeah, yeah. That's a great thing to bring up. Jerusalem artichoke is a great example of, like, this permanent producing potato, basically. You know, it's a starch crop. 
um, kind of like a grain type of replacement as a permanently producing year after year calorie, you know, carbohydrate crop um, that basically, you know, you, you set in disturbed ground and give it, get it, at least for us, we let it get going um, with a minimal of care in the first year. Like you can till a strip. We'll like till whole strips in different areas that are in between that we're not going to crop. And then we'll stuff in pieces juice from our artichoke from like the year or two old or older strips that we, you know, we keep doing new strips every year and propagating from the year before or five year before strips with pieces of root. And you plug those in as root pieces and you have a permanent a place that's permanently producing calories um, and, uh, you know, pollinator habitat and all sorts of other wildlife yields for you know, darn near forever until they're shaded out by, by tree succession. Um, and that's a great example of something that's like very easy to establish in zone four. I like to joke, you know, a 22 rifle, uh, and, and Jerusalem artichokes is like your kind of background, like best survival strategy. Now, You're not wrong. No, you tend I mean, on. Yeah. I mean, if you can, if you're Jerusalem artichokes, some wild greens, which are everywhere, and you know, like a meat source, you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna get by. I mean, they're just a really true kind of back of the cellar survival strategy. I'll be honest, I don't eat tons of them. I mean, they they call them fried chokes yeah. for a reason. They are yeah. that high in the, I guess it's the inulin content. The sugar is, you know, a little hard to break down for, or a lot hard to break down for some people. But you can definitely slow cook them. Um, you can lacto-ferment them like a sauerkraut, which ha- tends to help sometimes a lot. And we'll do – we love pureed soup. Like if you do a slow cook of soup and then puree, that seems to be definitely way better um, as far as digestibility. They're great for diabetics because I guess the sugar being different, um, mm-hmm. they're, they're a lot uh, less likely to spike the blood sugar on, on diabetic folks. Great, definitely a great option is is a, is a is a plant like Jerusalem artichoke or a, an analogous plant to wherever you live. Sure, anything that would do for that. sure. Yeah, I, I found that the best uh, fartichoke uh, therapy is to eat small amounts of them. If you mm, eat a little yeah. bit, you know, so you you make dinner, you cut one up, you fry it like potatoes, and everybody eats a little bit, and you don't have a, a noisy night. If you if you make a plate full, yeah, and then. You said it's worse for some and not others. I found lacto fermented. I can eat as many of them as I want, and it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't do anything. Actually, you know pickles too. Um, my wife made a, a pickle, a pickled them, and it's awesome. Really? Yeah, I think they're definitely. I think they were lacto fermented to some extent, but they were more so just in a pickled situation, like in the fridge for for months on end, and yeah. really, really. I mean, that was my kind of my favorite way to eat them besides the pureed soup. They were like really, really tasty. Awesome, man. I, I grow them in containers, big containers, because they, they, when they send a runner up against the wall of the container, yeah. they just set all their nodules right there. So you mm. just reach down and pull them out, and you can leave them in over winter. Mm-hmm. So you harvest them, because our winters aren't bad. So like I'm not right. out there with a hammer trying to get in there. So, right. so I can just go out and take like two out and just harvest all winter, and then they just start growing back. Yeah. And it's It's awesome. Yeah. So here I got a complex one, but I think this is actually a really interesting one, and it's right in line with what we're talking about today. Um, Drew from Facebook, I am on 21 acres. No, that's the wrong one. I'm sorry. Sorry, Drew. Uh, Matthew, I have a 100-plus year, three-acre grove, but it's made up almost entirely of silver maple. It's in a decline phase currently. Any tips on how to transition it to a long-term healthy zone four? Looking to be able to encourage wildlife and have some more wild edibles. Currently, I have ramps, wild raspberries, 
while strawberry and elderberries growing that uh, came up on their own, and especially want to replace the aging silver maple overgrowth. Any thoughts on that? Uh, if you want climate, yeah. real quick, you have climate too. North central Iowa, 30 inches of rain, mostly flat, USDA zone 4 or 5. Sounds familiar, except you're not flat. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know there was any really zone four in Iowa. That's cool. I'm actually, I looked on your Facebook to, to see this so I can see the question. Yeah. He says um, surrounded by corn and soybeans. So there you go. There's the Iowa yeah. part. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is actually Iowa. Um, yeah, I, I think that was one of the places my mind went right off was if you can kind of accelerate the succession here and find like the worst of the silver maple zone, like where it's m most further, furthest along in senescence. Um, and actually, you know, drop some and get some sun in for the next phase. That would be one one way to potentially look at it. I, I don't want to jump to that because without knowing the system very well, I can't say for sure. But that would be a good a good thing to consider as you are. Um, you probably do want it. You do kind of have to get some sun in there to transition it to certain systems. Although there there is some shade, um, heavy shade worthy um stuff you could grow but just the list is a lot shorter of of what's possible there i mean a lot of it depends on your goals too i don't really see any goals written down like if it's like i want to get as much medicine out of this as possible or as much calorie crops out of it as possible or i want to be as much value for my grazing herd as possible those are all obviously very different mm -hmm. treatments <laughs> to to apply so goals are you know without goals You can't really say, but yeah, are we looking to do this I'm like a Mark Shepard style, where animals graze in alleys, or are we looking this to be woods when you're done? Like that's yeah, that I mean, matters. I'm, I'm assuming it's the goals are, are human food, but that that may not be the case. And also, yeah. then how close is this? Is this going to be zone one, or is it always going to be? Is it going to be zone four? Is this far from your house? Is it? Well, he does say he wants it. To, he wants it to be a healthy zone four system, and oh, he is does. concerned. He does and he is concerned about you know making it good for wildlife. So we do know that. Yeah. 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 Okay. There are those goals. That's true. Um, yeah. I mean, increasing diversity and again, looking at what, what is limited in your area. So if you're in trees are really valuable, more valuable in that part of the world than they are here, all things being equal because you're in Iowa and as you say, you're surrounded by corn and soy. So yeah, I mean, I probably would look to um, what would be the next tree system. So looking to it for it to go back into trees, um, given that there's probably, you know, there's such, such few uh, acreage, a percentage of acreage and tree cover in that part of the world. And those are like island refuges for, for wildlife there where they can get away from the big fields. Um, so probably dropping some trees as, as they allude to, so you can plant others. Cause if you plant in the understory, they'll limp along. But then when the big silver maples fall down, I mean, a hundred year old silver maples could be 120 feet tall and like fall over in all directions. They get really like multi-stemmed off and, um, they can take out your next, you know, tree crops you're trying to promote. Sure. So sometimes the first, you know, tool to, to use to promote the next forest is a chainsaw, even though that sounds obviously like the opposite direction. So that's probably, you know, strongly, strongly got to consider that. And then planting what is most limited in that area probably is going to be pretty heavy on nuts just for the food value alone for wildlife. Um, but it could be some fruits that hold through the winter two those would be kind of on the top of my list the same trees the same kind of general tree categories that we focus on here 
I think is, is safe to say there, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't limit it to that. I would really try to get to know the area and they probably already do like what's, what's really limited there. Yeah. I'm hesitant to say too much without really knowing what we're dealing with. I mean, one of the things that always makes me feel better about cutting trees down is if I put water in. So if there's some small mm-hmm. pond sites that can go in there with the creation of some glades and mm-hmm. when I'm done, now I have an opening, I can grow on the edges and the margins, these new trees and I've got water Now things are really starting to feel a lot better about taking down these older trees. Yeah. Um, I was in Iowa a couple of years ago. Um, not really a long overwintering tree, but the one tree that I saw that was productive, that there were a lot of growing native, were native mulberry. So mm-hmm. that, that would be something, you know, you could look toward. That's not a real high-value long-term tree, but that's like in consort with nuts. You get something faster, yeah. you know. Yeah, good, good to have in the mix for sure. It sounds like – um a riparian floodplain forest to me from everything they're saying. Yeah. Um, so maybe, well, I don't know if pawpaws would, would take it in that climate, but you know, other uh, right. you know, looking at looking across the board, I know there's a, a caria species. I'm not familiar with it cause I don't live with it, but I know there's a hickory that, that uh, does really well in floodplains. I think um, looking at that plant in particular, well, what's going to really thrive in that type of um, system there. It sounds like a, Like a clay plain forest, and yeah. Some buy some buy some chestnuts for Mark Chest uh, Mark uh, Mark uh, Shepherd. It's they're mm-hmm. kind of been you know moved toward that direction. So yeah, although the chestnuts really like gravelly, sandy, they may not like this True. loamy clay. It's like clay, but maybe our, our chestnuts have been very finicky and like the only our sandiest spots. Really? But yeah, and I've heard that they really like almost like gravelly soils, which I don't have, but it makes sense to me seeing them grow. Given the grape culture in a lot of their uh, their native, because you know, we're we're growing basically Chinese, which I think are closer to European mm. uh, chestnuts than they are to the original American. So, uh, like if you look at where chestnuts grow in Italy and France and all, they grow a lot like where the Gamay the Gamay grapes and all grow, and they grow in really really gravelly places. So mm. yeah, I never really thought of that, but that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, quite droughty. I think that's that's I think that'll wrap up. Um, Facebook, a lot of stuff that was because I didn't explain myself and people were talking sure. About yeah, I, I, yeah, I yeah. see other ones. Jake, Jake wants to know what the highest value and lowest effort producing edible from Zone Four is. I'd say deer. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think he means it that way, but that's you know, bang. Okay, I got ninety pounds of meat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the J choke goes in with that question too a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He only asked one. We gotta, we gotta give him credit. That. Right. I gotta, I gotta give Jake a shout out, man. At the last workshop he was at, he was, he was fantastic. He was a pleasure to have around. We, mm-hmm. we had the rule, but we didn't need it. You know, it was great. <laughs> anyway, man, tell people how they can learn more about you, and if, if anything you got coming up, that maybe people could come out and learn from you or anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Well, whole systems design. You know, keep up on the um, website. I haven't been my facebook page is pretty active i haven't been on the instagram page in a while taking a little break from that but um yeah go to our website wholesystemsdesign.com we have our permaculture course yearly coming up we have our apprenticeship in the spring two weeks uh this year that's mostly full but there's some spots left um maybe one and um we're doing a bunch of cool courses they're all on the website we're doing some natural movement courses at our new site um where we'll focus on a bit of this as well one of the days will be focused on you know, zone for permaculture um you know rewilding uh the landscape as a whole around you so yeah 
And let me throw in a plug for your book, man. We, you know, we were talking about Zone 4 today, and your book really tends to focus more on the one, two, three zones because mm -hmm. that's what you were developing when you wrote it. Yeah. And it, it is kind of angled toward the northern climates because that's where you live. But I think it's a fantastic book. It's one of the most practical permaculture books from this is what I did, this is how it worked, this is what did work, this is what did work, where people actually want to do something rather than, than, than think about maybe doing something someday. So I really recommend your book. And as far as your courses, I, I, it's worth the fee to take one of Ben's courses just to walk his property. It is a fantastically amazing property, um, and it is. It is. I, I, I've been to a lot of sites, Ben, and uh, I haven't been to yours for years. I need to figure out a way to get back up there to see it again because I know it's yeah. changed. But I've been to a lot of sites. You have something really unique in what you've done on your property, man. It, it's pretty spectacular. Oh, thanks, man. Well, it was great to have you up here. We'll have to have to make it happen again. Come the high summer, you know, when it's when it's nice and hot out and. You'll, you'll when I'll be shivering it. in my tent at 64 degrees. <laughs> yeah, you'll be soaking wet, cold in your tent. <laughs> at 64, I'll be cold. Anyway, yeah. man, thanks thanks for being with us today, Ben. I appreciate you. Have a great day. And, uh, you know, thank you also for serving on the Expert Council. But anytime you have a subject you want to talk about, get with us. We'll get you on the air. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Jack. We'll talk to you later. Great stuff, as always, from Ben. I really enjoyed that discussion. I mean, Uh, I sit here on my little three-acre piece, and I, I feel pretty blessed to have that. But as I was saying when we were talking, I would love to have you know even 20 acres. And those of you that are looking at larger properties, and you you know you find a property and it's mostly wooded, and you're thinking I want to do all this stuff that Jack talks about and swales and stuff, don't let it put you off. I, I really mean it. I think if I had you know 10 acres and up, I don't care if it's a thousand acres, I would probably manage one to three kind of as open space management. You know, maybe you go into those woods and maybe you find an opportune spot and you put some dams and ponds and stuff in those woods, but most of it I would leave as managed woodlands. I think that is kind of the best of all things and the abundance that you get in a system like that. And it is infinitely, infinitely sustainable. Like We talk sometimes about the difference between sustainable and regenerative. And sustainable basically means barely surviving in some people's minds. And I think it depends. I think, it, you know, we're back to that thing like it's not the binary thinking is what got us into problems in the first place. You know, regenerative uh, is a sustainable thing. That's the way I look at this. So instead of thinking there's an on off switch, so if you start turning a dimmer switch up and the light comes on and let's say that becomes sustainable, that means that we can we can keep doing things this way for a very long time. But if anything goes wrong, the dimmer switch turns down, it stops. Well, then how far up can you turn that dimmer switch? That's what I think of when I think of sustainable. And let's turn that dimmer switch up as far as we can till we have a bright light. And that's what I think managed forestry really is. It is infinitely sustainable, i.e. regenerative. With that, uh, as we wrap up today, I want to remind you guys that one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T. SPAZ.com, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you can see all the reviews I've ever done on Amazon, and as long as you start your shopping at tspaz, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do no matter what you eventually buy. The product I have for you today might be very useful for some use of these fibers and other things that we can harvest in Zone 4 systems, um, but it's really useful in your kitchen. These are Fisker's 7-inch take-apart kitchen shears. Basically, they're scissors for the kitchen. Um... There is actually a better product than these. It was made by a company called Red Yeti Wear. They don't exist anymore. 
This is so. This is now the best available kitchen shears in the world, in my opinion. Uh, now there might be something out there that sells for three hundred bucks or something like that that's better, but it ain't gonna be that much better. These are like thirteen bucks. They're sharp. They're strong. They're powerful. Here's the things about them that I like beyond a lot of other competing products. Number one, I don't know why people that make take apart kitchen shears do this. But they design them so that in the normal operation, you can extend them enough that they will then come apart. That is stupid. But most stuff is made that way. I have never had these come apart on me unless I was taking them apart because I wanted to. Uh, number two, they do, in fact, come apart. I will not buy a set of kitchen shears that do not come apart because I'm not cutting the backbone out of a chicken today and cutting up lettuce tomorrow with the same shears if I can't take them apart to make sure I cleaned out all the chicken skank. Just to be blunt there. Number three, they have micro serrations. That means they cut really, really well. And number four, they're lifetime warrantied. I mean, they're everything you could want in a set of kitchen shears. And, you know, I'm okay with spending a couple hundred dollars on a knife. I am not okay with spending a couple hundred dollars on essentially a pair of scissors. Fiskars makes it where you don't have to do that and you get great performance. Check them out today. You can find them at tspaz.com under our most current reviews. And you can always find the deals of the day on Amazon and all kinds of cool stuff. And everything I've ever reviewed alphabetically categorized at tspaz.com. And remember, if it's on tspaz, I own it. I use it. I spent my money on it. If I needed it again, I would buy it again, or I will not ask you to spend your money on it. That's the integrity. We run everything on here at the Survival Podcast. That brings us to our song of the day. We're on Cool Covers Week, and we have a song by 10,000 Maniacs, and they're covering it. It was originally done by Cat Stevens, and it's called Peace Train. And I've always loved this song. I've always thought this was a great song, and... When I think of this song, and I think of other songs like it that came out in the Vietnam War era that spoke of peace, I think about the man that I was when I was 20, when I was serving in the Army. And I bought into the bullshit. Now, I'm not saying serving in the Army is bad. I'm proud of my military service. I, I, do not, I do not, for one minute, look down on my military service. I think it helped make me a, a huge part of the man I am today. And I have incredible respect for those that serve. But... I did buy into the mainstream bullshit that whenever this country went to war, we were always right. Always, no matter what. And the bigger problem is, I bought into the belief that anybody that spoke of peace when somebody beat the drums of war, you know, was, uh, was, was not patriotic. That what they, you know, they were a stupid uh, peacenik hippie, they were a commie, whatever name they came up from. I bought right into it. And it's because I was willing to risk my life for defense of what I believed in, and therefore I believe that anybody who would speak ill against anything that I might be called to do must be wrong. And that's the programming they do to us. And you know that your nation doesn't have a valid argument for why we're doing something when they trash talk those that speak of peace. If those that speak of peace are wrong in any given situation... You can make a logical and rational case for the use of force. When you have to, instead of argue the facts with those that speak of peace, just basically shit on them, you really have to question the source of the information telling you that we need to go bomb and kill other people in another country that you have never seen before in your life. I would love to see more and more people get on the peace train. 
There's a big difference between being pro-peace and being pacifist. I am not a pacifist, but I am for peace. And I would only ask this of people who would speak ill of those who are pro-peace. If you aren't pro-peace, what else can you be other than pro-war? And it makes me think of all people, of someone that the people that try to do this just can never speak ill of. Dwight David Eisenhower, when he said, The hope of the world is that wisdom can arrest conflict between brothers. I believe that war is the deadly harvest of arrogant and unreasoning minds. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. about the world as it is. One must